Hello, and welcome to Outward for the month of May. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I want to shout out all the straight people who kindly evacuated the dance floor when Decepticon came on at the queer wedding I was at last weekend. So, so (laughs) kind. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and though you listeners can't see it, I will be changing my look not merely four, but 58 times over the course of this episode. Eat it, Gaga. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there he goes. He changed. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep tally. Uh, And I am Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine, and I feel my gay powers growing as we get closer to Pride. I feel them too. Thank you. On this month's episode, we're talking about the birds and the bees making the beast with two backs, (laughs) shaking the sheets, (laughs) that three-letter word to describe one of life's most awkward and emotional and exquisite acts, sex. In particular, we're going to break queer sex out of the silence and mystery that it's often shrouded in. To do that, though, we'll bring back our straight studies segment and play a little game with the good-natured straight Forrest Wickman to explore some mainstream myths around queer sex. Then we'll have a discussion about queer sex education and what sorts of lessons we think should be taught. We'll also chat with The Atlantic's Anna Waters, who recently wrote a piece that asked why dental dams still exist if nobody uses them. And finally, we'll wrap up winking face emoji, (gasps) with the gay agenda. Amazing. But before we do that, before we get on to making the beast with two backs, (laughs) a phrase I'd never heard before this moment. Really? uh, I want to talk about our prides and provocations. Brandon, since you so eloquently described uh, our theme this month, why don't you go first? So I, for the second time in a row, am provoked Uh, But this time I'm provoked at myself, turning it inward. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So I was recently at a cookout, um, at a friend's cookout, and somebody there was talking about how uh, Wonderland Ballroom in Washington, D.C., in Northwest D.C., it stands in place of what used to be one of the country's oldest gay black bars. Um, And so I think until 2004, it was called Knob Hill. Mm. Um, And it was Black-owned, and it also mainly catered to uh, gay Black men in the area. And um, they found some factoids about it. It started in 1953 as more of a private social club. Um, And then a few years later, in 1957, um, it opened up to the public. And so one thing I thought was particularly interesting was that on Sunday nights, Knob Hill would have a gospel hour um, with local choirs. Yeah. Uh, And so I just think it's fascinating to sort of transpose that dimension of sort of, you know, something that we often think about with black life and transpose that into the cultural space of a a, a bar mm-hmm. that caters to gay black men in particular. And so I was mainly provoked because I'm I spend so much time whinging about how uh, how white uh, mainstream gay places are in DC. Um, and this bar is literally less than 10 minutes from my house mm-hmm. walking. Um, and I, I knew nothing about it. I kind of consider myself a history snob or at least somebody who, you know, has a sort of devotion to the importance of knowing about history, especially the history of where you live. And I've been in Northwest D.C. for two and a half years and not know about this until like two and a half weeks ago. Um, So learn your local history, kids, and think about what's around you. It's funny because even Wonderland Ballroom, which is the bar that stands there now, has changed a lot over the Mm -hmm. past several years. Like I know... 
it used to be a little bit of a default kind of queer bar just because a lot of queer people used mm-hmm. to live and still live in Columbia Heights, um, although it's gotten way more expensive in recent years. Um, but I know my partner used to throw a party there or maybe just went to a party there. Um, and uh, very often that was called Pink Sock. <laughs> And it was a queer party. Um, that's a term that we might define in our straight studies segment uh, with Forrest Wickman. Um, no, but I I remember reading that in um, some like queer DC mm-hmm. history article a while back, and it's uh, incredible. It was incredible to learn that um, you know this bar that now is full of like a, a lot of times preppy straights mm-hmm. used to be like a highly renowned like a destination for gay black men who came to the city yeah and i remember one time i was it was i was at just wonderland and um they had the second floor is more of sort of like the dance floor and it was one of the few bars that was primarily mixed um but they played knock a few buck and i was just like <laughs> i feel like this is a remnant <laughs> of the fact that they used to cater to like black people <laughs> um but anyway, uh, who's next for, for our Pride and Provocations? Brian, what do you have? Sure. I have a um, Pride this month um, on the heels of the Met Gala, which just happened uh, the week that we are recording. And it is around the the sort of richness of camp discourse that has been flowering online around this event. Um, the event itself, I think, was sort of, you know, people can have varying opinions about it. I found it kind of dull. But what I've loved seeing is queers and other people actually re-engaging with this concept that's so important to queer art and queer people. Um, and even if We should just clarify that the theme of the Met Gala was camp. It was camp, year. that's right. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, as well as the attached um, uh, exhibition that w- just opened uh, this week. Um, yeah, that's the theme. And so, um, you know, there have been a lot of articles popping about what is camp and lots of people on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot arguing, you know, about someone's definition versus their own and um, wonderful, um, you know, tax economies of the kinds of camp on display and the outfits that night at the gala. So I just think it's been cool to see, regardless of what you think camp is or what's your you know preferred definition um, or which outfit you liked the most from the celebrities that night, I just think it's really great to see uh, this queer thing like in the discourse again. And it just makes me happy. So I'm proud of that. You're right, Brian. Uh, I was kind of grumpy watching all of these straight people try to talk about what it was. But you're right. I should be proud of it, too. Yeah. Uh, I'm provoked this month by the treatment of Castor Semenya, the world champion track star from South Africa, who uh, just recently, I think it was last week, was told by um, the International Sports Court that she's going to have to take medication to lower the amount of testosterone her body naturally creates in order to be considered within the appropriate bounds of womanhood to compete in women's track events, which she said that she's not going to do. Um, but I'm I, I, this provokes me for so many reasons. First of all, that her gender has been the nexus of such sustained scrutiny for a decade that the way the mainstream narrative around bodies has elevated testosterone as some sort of holy grail of athletic performance when the science Mm -hmm. around that is actually a a lot more nuanced. We actually talked to um, Alex Barish, friend of the podcast, about that this week on The Waves. He wrote a great piece in The Washington Post about it. And I'm additionally provoked by the fact that 
some news outlets and tweets have been saying that Semenya is trans, which she isn't. She's mm. a cis woman, which just goes to show that, you know, gender discrimination and sexism, homophobia, transphobia all share this uh, really toxic root in a desire to punish people who deviate from these very narrow conceptions of appropriate womanhood or manhood uh, just for the sole purpose of reinforcing existing hierarchies of power. It, this is like the the ultimate provocation for me. Um, mm-hmm. The more I read about it and the more I think about it, the more provoked I am. So um, just sending love and respect to Castor Semenya for not backing down. Um, and, and I'm sure she's going to appeal this decision. Um, so I'll be following that story. All right. Before we get on to the rest of the show, I just want to thank again all the listeners out there who have rated and reviewed Outward. Um, We love to see you in the comments um, and just know that by rating us, by giving us a good review, if it's honest and you actually do love the podcast, (laughs) uh, really helps us get into more people's ears. So thank you. Also, a quick plug to our listeners who are in New York, or if you're willing to travel to New York for queer fun, uh, you can get a double shot of Outward Live this summer. First, you can join us along with The Waves podcast on June 8th for a live brunch show on the High Line, and we're going to be joined by some amazing special guests. We're going to have Sherlyn McRae, who is a writer, poet, and currently the first lady of New York City, possibly of the country if uh, Bill de Blasio runs. Um, She'll be fantastic. And we will also be joined by Ms. Cracker, who's a wonderful drag queen, will be performing. Um, So that will be on June 8th. And then we're back in New York again on June 27th for a live show at Joe's Pub where we'll be commemorating the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and celebrating Pride with you all. You can come get your tickets now at slate.com slash live. And we really hope to see you there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So today we thought we would bring back a segment we haven't done in a while called Straight Studies, in which we bring a wonderful straight person into the studio to discuss um, the theme in a way that uh, they might understand uniquely. Um, And so today we have Forrest Wickman, who is the culture editor at Slate, here with us uh, to talk about queer sex and straight sex and, you know, how what he knows about each of those things, maybe. So welcome, Forrest. Uh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. So the reason you're here, actually, I um, think I know where you're going. Yeah, <laughs> you might know rose, where I'm going. It's the rosebud it's thing. It's the rosebud. <laughs> so we, w- I'm, I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind for our listeners explaining what we mean by the rosebud thing, because it signaled to us that you may know something about <laughs> queer sex, and so it was, it was. Uh, this came up at work. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this came completely from my own ignorance, but basically, so we have a podcast called Dakota Ring. It is now named Dakota Ring, but once upon a time, we were trying to figure out the name for it, and we came up with a few different options, including Dakota Ring, um, Rosebud, and others that I guess are irrelevant to this discussion. Yeah. I thought that Rosebud was a pretty good name. I thought the Dakota Ring was good as well. 
and a bunch of us. Wait, explain why you thought Rosebud was a good name. What was the straight meaning? Of uh, it? Because of basic, yeah, basically because uh, we wanted something that would convey both uh, that it was a mystery show, like it was a show in which we were solving mysteries, and also that they were pop cultural mysteries. And so Rosebud being the central mystery of Citizen Kane sort of suggested both mystery and pop culture. Dakota Ring suggests mystery, maybe not quite as much pop mm-hmm. culture, so that was an argument for Rosebud. However, I then soon learned that among uh, predominantly like, so most of us in this discussion were, were straight. Um, ben Frisch, the producer of Dakota Ring, is not straight, and he was like, uh, I don't <laughs> think this is a good name for this. And we were, you know, didn't understand why. Uh, I don't remember how much he explained exactly, but uh, at some point I was Googling Rosebud. Yeah. <laughs> I was on Urban Dictionary, and I don't know if what we is really need to explain for our listeners. Uh, well, I've discovered there's some debate about this, about, like, how graphic it Yeah, I is. think we can say—we I, I, don't want the, the podcast to become super explicit, I don't think, but, um, I, I, I mean, it, it has meaning, certainly, in, like, the fisting community, for one thing, um, and probably other ones that I'm not even thinking of immediately, but— cool. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, the the—, the disagreement that I've stumbled upon in talking about <laughs> in <your> this <laughs> is that, well, some people are just like, oh, it's just like an affectionate term for an asshole. Yeah. And uh, that That's true. may be true for some people, but yeah. the the meaning I was familiar, familiar with is one that I think you're more alluding to, which yeah. is like something that happens after fisting. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, well, welcome for us. Welcome for <laughs> us uh, on that note. Um, so the, the, the HR what, department has ears and eyes in this room right now. It's freaking <laughs> out. Um, so actually to get into that, like w- one of the first things we wanted to ask you was wh- when did you sort of first become aware of queer sex as something different from, you know, what you were interested in? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I could say precisely when I... <sighs> became aware of the differences exactly. I can say I certainly remember a particular moment when I realized how ignorant I was and something that seems so obvious in retrospect, but I've had a few experiences like this, which is I was watching the show uh, Looking, the Mm. HBO show, and uh, in one scene, two gay men uh, basically have sex in the missionary position. And I suddenly realized like, oh, like you can do that, which in retrospect feels quite obvious but as somebody who had not seen a lot of gay sex uh you know it just had somehow never occurred to me yeah um and so yeah i mean i've had it's actually striking to me how many of the specific experiences i've had of seeing um gay sex or at least in this case gay male sex on screen that have been really striking and have kind of like taught me things or felt real or just like in andrew hay things like that show and in weekend which is quite honest about uh gay sex yeah i think his stuff is really praised for that i think that's i think that's for a lot of people the first time that they that they saw uh anything like that i mean what was are there any other uh like myths or or uh paradigm shifting moments that like blew up your brain that you can remember? Well, I mean, I think the the uh, the main one that comes to mind for me for lesbian sex, um, and I'm probably not alone, is from uh, Blue is the Warmest. Well, so I, I, it's actually less about Blue is the Warmest Color than the debate around Blue is the Warmest Color. Mm. So at the time, we did a, a, a Slate video that was something like lesbians react to the sex scene in Blue is the Warmest Color, which... 
I really loved and I distinctly remember the debate in it about scissoring mm-hmm. and like whether it's a real thing or whether something it's something that's just like part of kind of male gazy lesbian yeah. porn yeah. which seems to me as far as I can tell like it's still kind of unsettled. Uh, yeah, there there is a debate about that. And in fact, there are lesbians in my life, one friend in particular, who gets really upset when she hears people say things like, Ugh, lesbians don't scissor, because she's like, I love that. That is like the ultimate sex act for me. And so this myth that nobody does it, like, uh, creates a, a situation whereby like people just learning how to have lesbian sex are like, oh, that's not a thing. Oh, OK, I'm not going to try it. Or like, I, I I'm not going to consider that sex. One question I have for you, Forrest, is like a lot of the um, sort of experiences or whatever that you are mentioning as sort of like, ah, I hadn't thought about that before seem fairly recent, like later sort of things. So like Blue is the Warmest Color or Looking, which I don't know the exact date, like year that it came out, but it's not old. Yeah, this was like three or four years ago probably or two, maybe a couple years ago even. And so I'm wondering like what if you did you think about sort of queer sex in any way before that like did it come up among like friends or like or or whatever and if you did like what what popped into your head yeah i mean i was thinking about the way that like i guess predominantly straight dudes talked about it in like middle school mm. and i think this is part of it right is is like a way of talking about gay sex was just like oh you do it from behind mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. which you know, suggests not just, you know, anal sex and, you know, the extent to which it's just anal sex is like its own conversation that maybe you guys are talking about separately. But um, uh, I think that like the way that straight men, at least when I was growing up, imagined gay sex was that it was just like having penetrative sex with somebody Mm -hmm. from behind. Mm -hmm. And I think like since then, I've it's become more and more clear to me that a I mean, I think just like for as one gets older in general, one realizes that like sex can mean so much more than just penetrative things. Um, and also that that's like true for many gay men. Um, and I feel like another thing that I have that like sort of a, a, a myth that was conveyed to me by pop culture is that like uh, when people have uh, anal sex I guess it's really just like anybody but when gay men have anal sex it's just like you get right into it mm. and my understanding <laughs> is that it's like not there's like more preparation and so on yeah yeah, yeah. that is that's, um, that's good <laughs> I think one stereotype people have about straight people that gay people have about straight people is that well it's a two part thing one is that there's sort of an aversion to using toys in couples sex and the other one is that straight people don't know or care as much about lube as gay people do because they don't have to do you have any comment on that um, <laughs> wow that was so diplomatically <laughs> oh man i mean lube do you think that that the stereotype is that straight people are less prone to uh, use lube than uh, even lesbians, Christina? Uh, do you have any comment on that? <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that a lot of lesbians who use toys, I mean, right. you've got to have lube and different lubes for different toys. Um, 
And so I think there's a sort of level of literacy that people need to have in order to use those toys in terms of what kinds of lube to use which, with what kinds of material that I think a lot of people think that, A, straight people will feel like, oh, if I need lube, something's going wrong here. Right. I have to say, though, that it really bugs me that, peop- that so many people, so many women, so many lesbians even, are like, I don't need lube. Like, I would, like, Take a bath in lube. I love it. <laughs> I like more lube, more better. And I just like the sh- like. There's nothing to be ashamed of wanting. Like it's none of this. Like I don't need. Well, I don't need anything, <laughs> but I like it. Like what? I don't. I've never understood that that I think concept. But it's really, really broadly felt. It's also the like the one thing that I think every sex columnist I've ever read agrees on. Like, I've just heard it so many times from so many different places that I almost feel like what used to be everything around me saying, like, don't have sex, have safe sex, is now saying, like, use lube. Everyone needs lube. Like, lube is good. The more lube, the better. Um, the lube and, lobby's on it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I, I Like, I, I definitely uh, don't know that that's a change in the culture so much as a change in the cultural messages I surround myself with. But, yeah, it's uh, like – the aversion to using lube might be the same aversion that some people have had with condoms where like, oh, I don't want to break up the mood. And people will even say the same thing about consent. Like, I don't want to break up the flow of things by like asking for consent or like stopping to get a little bit of lube or something as if there's this like magical flow that once broken can never be reachieved, mm-hmm. even if it's reachieved with like more lube, which makes things better. <laughs> yeah, I, to launch the perhaps the like tiniest defense of my people, the straight male people. <laughs> Please. That's there why you're are, here, yeah. They are not entirely without downsides, right? Like, for example, both condoms and lube, if not used and selected properly, uh, like can have bad tastes and smells. Uh, and so... Yeah, it's like not as if it's always a plus in all situations. And you and I think you also referred to like using particular lubes with particular toys and stuff. And that and that can be it can, I think, like slow things down a little bit to be like, oh, shit, can I use this water based? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like take out my periodic table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of goes back to what Christina was saying, but I often think of especially, you know, like lube and like, you know, what's considered sort of like, quote unquote, normal. Um, among straight sex, but to me, like, anal sex in particular always seems sort of, like, exotic or, like, taboo. Like, it sort of just, like, would go back and forth in a way that was, like, like, almost like straight people don't have anal sex. Um, And if they do, it's for, like, some, like, weird sort of, like, oh, they're just, like, really kinky people. They're still, like, my conception was always, like, even among straight people, anal sex was a sort of um, aberration, um, but I don't know if that's actually accurate. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it de- like depends on the, on the hetero. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, <laughs> I like it does seem to me like certainly I've known straight people who are have the feelings you describe about um, anal sex. I mean, another thing that like I feel like has become more clear to me over time. You meant you mentioned like people who are kinkier than others. It's just that, like, it does seem to me that straight people are much more likely to be really kind of vanilla and and sort of conventional in all sorts Mm -hmm. of ways. And I could, like... Do you you feel like that's evolving or changing as 
like because of the sort of mainstreaming of queer life uh, that that we're like hearing more about how we do it like each other like each other i mean i just wonder if that's like changing it seems like it should very anecdotally i think so yeah uh but yeah i've i i do not i did not come prepared with studies you don't need studies <laughs> no no it's all anecdote um do you think straight people have anything to learn from gay people about how to have good sex Ooh, nice um yeah right answer Absolutely. I mean, like pretty much everything we were just talking about. It seems to me that like straight people grow up thinking that their biology tells them everything they need to know about how to do the sex. And they are just like, you know, everything that they do is like really... um, traditional and accepted and that makes them much more much less likely to like be interested in pursuing anything kind of non-normative in general uh and that probably leads them to be on average more boring Mm. that's a really good way to put it that's wonderful uh forrest thank you so much for coming through the podcast i know this was probably uh a a challenging embarrassing discussion i'm i'm blushing so i don't know uh, i but, uh, have never been so glad to be the one person remote with no <laughs> to look at in this room uh but thank you for for being willing to do this uh thanks for having me so this month's theme is one that we've been tossing around for a little while just trying to think of how to tackle it in a way that feels fresh and innovative and moves the conversation forward But to do that, we actually remember that we need to start with something that's fairly basic. The fact that for many queer people, sex education doesn't reflect their own experiences. It doesn't equip them with the knowledge that their straight peers receive to be both informed and safe and in some instances and make sure that they're unmentioned and unconsidered. For instance, like South Carolina, where Brian and I are from, um, there are so-called no promo homo laws, which prohibit positive references to queer folks. It's not like that everywhere, of course, but broadly speaking, queer sex education, at least in America, is aggressively bad. So with all that in mind, my first question for everyone is, how did you even learn about queer sex? I'm assuming that it wasn't (laughs) in school. Like, was it online? Was it from TV? Was it by reading magazines? Where where did this sort of knowledge come from? I think, I mean, I think the honest answer would be porn first. Although I don't know that I would have thought of what, like, the porn I was watching as a um, not really self-aware teenager as, like, learning how to have sex. Like, in, in retrospect, I guess that's what was happening, but it was it was more, like, just, like, the raw uh, encounter with desire, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. It wasn't like the mechanics weren't interesting to me. Um, that only sort of became interesting later. Um I'd say actually the, the the place I really learned about queer sex would have been from my first boyfriend. Um, I was really lucky to have a, in college, when I got to college a first boyfriend who kind who had been out for a good while longer um, and had other boyfriends before and who sort of taught me how to do it um, in a way that that was very generous and sweet um, and that I needed. And so, you know, and maybe and probably corrected some of the the (laughs) not great things I'd learned from that porn before. Um, So, yeah, that's where I'd say I got it. It certainly wasn't in school. That's for sure. I actually was trying to think about when I first saw a queer sex scene. Like, I'm sure I must have seen something in TV or movies, but 
I think the queer people who I saw on TV and in film were mostly desexualized. Like mm-hmm. the first one that came to mind on a show that I watched as um, a preteen was Dawson's Creek. And there was a character named Jack. I don't know if you guys were Jack fans or anything. A very sweet uh, gay character on Dawson's Creek. But uh his storyline, as I recalled, was mostly just about coming out and stuff like that and telling his family and telling his friends and, like, getting over his internalized homophobia. Um, but then I Googled it, and apparently he had the first, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. passionate gay male kiss on TV. But it was just a kiss. Uh, and apparently that was, like, a huge uh a huge deal at the time. The showrunner had to threaten to pull the show from the WB if the network wouldn't let him have this passionate mm. gay male kiss. Um, so I think, you know, and I certainly have watched porn and stuff, but any uh, like easily accessible lesbian porn is has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> what actual lesbians do. And so like yeah. that certainly did not prepare me. Um, but yeah, I think when I when I first felt like I wanted or needed to learn about queer sex, it was mostly through friends mm-hmm. um, or trial and error. I mean, I too had like that one partner who taught me a bunch of things. And like there's a lot of things you really need to know, especially if you're trying to like purchase equipment or something. There's <laughs> all manner of like good brands and bad brands mm-hmm. and and materials that are easier to clean and harder to clean and uh, like all kinds of stuff that straight people just generally don't even think to do, even if they could do. How about you, Brandon? Yeah, like mine was also, I like the way that Brian put it with regarding porn and that it was like less sort of like actively trying to figure out like how this works and more just kind of like, yo, trying to, trying to do this thing. <laughs> um, and I think like one person I actually learned from was a straight female friend of mine who I just knew had a lot of sex. And mm. so it was, like, very experienced and, like, had a lot of different types of sex. I would be like, hey, so, like, how does this work? Or, like, if you're trying to do this, like, what's the way that you need to do it? And she was the person who did not mind having that sort of, I was going to say straight talk, but uh, <laughs> didn't mind having <laughs> real talk about just, like, make sure you use a lot of lube and then, like, you know, this, it's going to take a while. So, mm. like, you have to be patient and, like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, I actually learned a lot in the in the early stages before I was sort of like out out um, from this friend of mine who's still one of my best friends and um, who's straight and just like had a lot of sex and so she could empathize. <laughs> Bless her. And, yeah. Love that. Um, I also want to like shout out, you just made me think like also the the Savage Love cast, like, I, like one of the first gay people I met told me to listen to that show mm-hmm. and that, that podcast like taught me a lot about sex now that I'm thinking about it. I just, all, all of these like things I heard on that show just like flashback in my mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. So Dan Savage, Sex Advice columnist, uh-huh. um, teach things to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like porn was something that came up in a lot of our stuff um, and it doesn't have to be just porn, but I am curious about sort of how these initial experiences, how did that sort of influence your idea, especially if it wasn't something that was necessarily accurate, how did that mm. influence how you thought queer intimacy could or should look, whether that was like this passionate but very sort of um, almost anesthetized sort of like kiss on TV <laughs> um, or, you know, the whatever porn you were watching, but like, did that make you think like, oh, it's supposed to look this way or it has to, or like this doesn't feel at all in line with like my own experiences? What were your... The question about porn and like how much it influences, I, I have this 
I don't know if it's like my, I shouldn't say my theory. I just I think I think it is true that gay porn, gay male porn influences the way gay men have sex much more than any other group maybe. Um it see, that it does seem to me that the script of most gay male porn scenes is the script that most gay men use when they have sex with each other in my experience. Um throughout my life that has been true. And I, th- I think it's the least, the least, like, I, I think, you, Christina, you and I have might have talked about this before. I think it's like, people say, you know, oh, porn's not realistic. It's not realistic. And I actually don't feel that way. Like, it's, it's unrealistic in the sense that the lighting is awesome and, like, everything <laughs> is, like, cut nicely so that there's, you know, the, the editing is nice. Literally so you know, and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, trim, trimmed nicely, you might say. Um, no, but, you know, yeah, there's production value, right, that's not present in, in real life sex. But I would, I don't know that my typical sexual encounter looks so different from what you see on like a standard porn scene um, in terms of, in ter- know, right? no, and that's not, I mean, I mean that literally just in terms of like the acts on display, right? Yeah. Like how the people are having sex with each other is how I have sex with people. And so that is, you know, take away all the stylizing part of it, but just that. Um, and, and so, so it's, that's a funny like point because I, you know, you hear people again say, and you said it just now that like, lesbian sex lesbian porn has nothing to do for the most part with lesbian sex and i just don't know that that's true for gay men it's interesting i wonder like first of all i'm wondering if it's a a chicken and an egg thing right like right. if gay sex is mimicking gay porn or if mm-hmm. gay porn is just an accurate depiction of what's been happening for millennia um <laughs> but i also think it might have something to do with the fact that men are usually the ones funding and directing and mm-hmm. creating porn and it's generally thought you know, both gay porn, straight porn, and lesbian porn is all generally thought to be for a male audience. So I think that it's, if it's accurate from a man's perspective, and there's two Mm -hmm. men in the scene, then, then yeah, it's going to be pretty damn accurate. Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's smart. Uh, Can I just pipe up? And I, I don't think, but one of the things that I think is relevant is that we're mostly talking about sex today, but I think one thing that can feel like that as queer people we don't get to experience like on the same timeline as straight people is I think more around relationships because maybe it's changed these days but certainly when I was growing up like if you were wanting to have queer relationships probably you couldn't anyway but even if you could you wouldn't have had that same process of like coming you know going to your parents Mm -hmm. and like introducing your first boyfriend girlfriend to your parents like having it be part of like a family situation or like having your friends at school, like be a friend group that all went out on dates together. And I have often felt that lack of like, it's almost like training wheels, you know, Mm. that you get to learn how to have relationships, how to introduce things to your parents, how to just how to talk about things and not be embarrassed about them even. So that that's one thing that I feel was very much delayed for me, like that I just never got that learning experience, never got that like apprenticeship for <laughs> for uh, like kind of being a grown up because mm-hmm. it is part of yeah. adult life. And that I just like I never got that practice. I've always thought that 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 actually helped explain the stereotype of like the first like if you are someone's 
in, uh, another gay queer person's gay person's first time, they like latch on really hard. Yeah. That that's a, there's like this. It's kind of a mean stereotype mm-hmm. actually that that's around um, that you need to be careful because they'll be like clingy. Um, and I, I imagine that might be part of that because it's this, such an intense like first encounter with that. And, and you know when you're if you're sort of a straight teenager, you get these like you said, training wheel, like build up things. Um, and we don't necessarily, we didn't used to necessarily get that. So I think that's probably very true. Uh, so last question I have is, um, we're talk- we are we talked a lot about sort of like the things that we didn't have or the things that we missed. Um, if you could sort of go back and like rewrite maybe your own experience or try to make these sorts of, uh, you know, the sexual experience of growing up as a queer person better for people today, like what would your sort of dream queer sex education curriculum have on it? I have a radical proposition. Ooh, I love it. I think instead of orienting sex education around straight people sex and then having queer sex be like uh you know and also there's this other stuff that like 10 percent or less of the population does a special we unit should, a sidebar <laughs> yeah <laughs> we should have uh the default be queer <gasps> sex education because i think straight people have so much to learn from how queer people have sex and then have you know, and then straight people can figure out what they want to do within the umbrella of what queer people do because the umbrella of queer sex includes this kind of sex that straight people can have. Um, straightness, so for instance, straightness as a kink. Yeah, yeah, straightness basically, is a like if you kink. want, there's this one type of thing you can do. Um, you know, there's there's so much straight people can learn from queer people, and not just in terms of um, you know, various kinds of non-monogamy and and especially consent, which I think looks different a lot of times in queer communities than in, in straight ones, just because of the, the in, in straight sex, a lot of times people just assume what you're going to do or what you want to do or what sex is. Um, but so I have written about studies. There have been many of these studies that regularly show that lesbians reach orgasm far more often during sex with a partner than straight women do. And orgasms don't need to be, like, the sole barometer for quality sex. But uh, I don't think it's that, like, oh, women just know other women's bodies because every everybody's body is so different. I don't think queer women have access to this, you know, uh, supernatural vein of knowledge that cis men can never access. My mm-hmm. hypothesis is just that queer people are more open to doing all kinds of things that don't prioritize and privilege the male orgasm. And so I think we should start from a place of, you know, here's this this cornucopia of sex things and what do people want to do? And it's funny because those sorts of like, quote unquote, alternatives to penetrative penis sex are often used among um, people that like adhere to a purity pledge. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to adhere to the letter of the law of this purity pledge and not the spirit of the law by doing all these other things. But actually, I think that in a in a sex positive world, um, that those should just be considered like uh, ways to have sex where you're like, oh, I'm not going to go into this. Straight people are uh, thinking like, I'm not going to go into this situation assuming that, like, we'd go to first base and second base and third base and then around to the, you know, fourth base, whatever. What's the main base that you start on? Home plate. (laughs) Then home plate. We're going to, like, you know, uh, start with this cornucopia and pick and choose, like, the three vegetables that you want out of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. 
Uh, so I think if I had to pick like one thing, um, I think it would be to make the prevalence of prejudice part of the curriculum as well. So not just sort of talking about um, queer sex equally to, you know, how straights do it, but also talking about the sort of like the history behind homo or not the history behind homophobia necessarily, but sort of also folding homophobia into the curriculum. Um, just because, you know, I think it adds a certain important context to it um, that I think if you're just telling kids like, and also if you identify this way, this is like what sex could be like, I think sort of instilling in them that like, it's also important to know why we are talking about how it is different for different people will also at least help to start them down, I guess, like the path of thinking like, oh, like if I do, if I treat somebody X sort of way, then like this is why it's important that I don't do this. Um, I think just like folding that into like a broader sort of history lesson of it's important that we have this conversation. We can't just talk about it equally. We need to talk about why we need to talk about it equally um, and talk about the prevalence of homophobia. I think that would be an important part um, to that would play an important role in sort of queer sex education curriculums as well. I love that. Um, yeah, that's a great point. And actually, it's kind of, it, it sort of dovetails with mine, which was equally, I think, a little bit like abstracted from like the the sort of mechanics question. I, I mean, I think especially, particularly for men, uh, men who have sex with men, so gay men, bi men, anybody that falls under that umbrella, I think a good sex education would have to include um, a correction of the idea that that kind of sex is inherently dangerous mm-hmm. um, and that you will die um, if you do it. Um, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, even growing up as I did in the age after uh, the drug cocktails and whatever where AIDS was not a death sentence necessarily, um, it still was very much in the air, certainly in a place like South Carolina. Um, and I think that's probably still true in a lot of parts of the country. Um, you know, the, 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 the desires I was having or experiencing at that, at that age were going to get me killed. Um, and, I, you know, I think we're, we just live in a different world now. It's, you know, certainly um, with PrEP, with with undetectable equals, untransmittable, all of that information um, should be part of it. But the, the big point should be like your sex life, the, the desires that you're having to express sexually um, are not something to be afraid of, but are in fact something that could be a source of joy and pleasure and um, or nothing, but just but just th- th- that they don't have to be wrapped up in fear. And I think that's going to take a lot of work to untangle, um, and people are, are doing it, but um, I think it would have to be part of any sort of comprehensive sex education, certainly for men who have sex with men. All right. Well, that's it for the discussion. Listeners, if you have any suggestions about what you would include on your own dream queer sex education curriculum, please let us know at outwardpodcast.slate.com. Now we'd like to welcome a special guest to the show, Anna Waters, an editorial fellow at The Atlantic, who recently published a piece called Nobody Uses Dental Dams. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. I'm so so happy to have you. Uh, So what inspired you to write about the humble dental dam? Well, it was mostly just confusion because <laughs> I I knew of dental dams. I knew what they were, but I did not know anyone who had ever used one. I'd never seen one out in the wild, like in a CVS. And it had always been something in the back of my mind that I was like, oh, I wonder if, if there's an explanation for why these are a thing if nobody's actually using them. And why do I know what they are? <laughs> um, and so that is what kind of first got me interested in talking to some people. 
So where did you start your investigation? Well, first, I just read everything online that there was about dental dams, um, which is not a ton. Not a ton of people are writing about dental dams. But I I looked into other like stories that have been written. There have been some stories about the challenges companies have had in selling dental dams because there's not a ton of consumer demand. And there was some stuff about dental dam portrayal in like media and things like that. But nothing that really answered my question of why are they a thing? Why are we talking about them? No one's using them. Why can't we admit that? (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I just kind of read all that stuff. And then I reached out to the only academic I could find who had studied quantitatively dental dam use. Wow. Who was that? So the only academic I could find who had ever studied dental dams in a quantitative way was Juliet Rectors. And she's a former professor at the University of New South Wales. And so I reached out to her and set up a call and asked about why she was looking into them and what she had discovered. And her research showed that practically nobody used them. So less than 2% of women who have sex with women were using dental dams in any capacity. And that, I mean, if that's the take-up rate in your target community, it's kind of confusing about why that product (laughs) exists. Um, Yeah, so – when they were created, were dental dams targeted at women who have sex with women? And and is that still the target audience? Yes. And I wasn't sure about that because theoretically, um, the act of cunnilingus is performed on people who are not having sex with women, I have heard. But it seems like in this case for dental dams, they were specifically for women who have sex with women. They were for queer women. And they came out of the AIDS crisis in the context of queer activism and health activism. And so this has been a product that was traditionally for lesbians. It doesn't necessarily – I'm not necessarily sure if lesbians were ever actually using them. But it is very specific to this community and that's something that – also came across in terms of where people were hearing about them. A lot of people who didn't have kind of comprehensive sex ed that brought it up heard about them in like the L word or in like queer circles. It was like, oh, dental dam, that's a word we all know and think about. Like it's kind of culturally understood as lesbian and in terms of the introduction of the dental dam like as a product, um, as like a safe sex product, it was specifically for lesbians. Yeah, tell me more about that. That was one of the many bits of information that I got from your piece that I didn't know, which was that, you know, this was something that it seemed like lesbians asked for during the AIDS crisis. Why was it like, where did that desire come from? Yeah, and that that's something that confused me, too. But um, I talked to a couple different historians and Katie Batza, who wrote this book called Before AIDS about queer health centers, was super helpful in explaining that. And she kind of walked me through the complete hysteria in the queer community during the AIDS crisis. There was no scientific understanding of how AIDS was transmitted. All queer people knew was that their community was dying. And queer women had no evidence to prove that it wasn't something that was going to going to start killing them off either. And so they um, started going to dental dam manufacturers. Now, the dental dam as a product used by dentists has existed <laughs> for a while. Um, it was invented in like 1864. And it's for, like, dental surgery. It's very not about sex. And what is, I mean, for any of our listeners who don't (laughs) know, like, what is a dental dam? Um, A dental dam is a latex sort of, like, sheet that is used to, like, be a barrier between genitalia and, like, a mouth in performing different types of oral sex. Okay. 
So yes. you were saying they, you know, they existed, but mostly for dentists. Yes, pretty exclusively for dentists. <laughs> um, but then during the AIDS crisis, there was this just complete confusion and hysteria and and fear about what different, um, like how AIDS was transmitted. And there started to become an understanding about condoms as a successful way to prevent AIDS um, and the transmission of HIV. But there weren't sort of equivalent products for queer women. And so a lot of the queer women activists at that time started getting dental dams from dentists or using saran wrap, making makeshift ones, or going to condom manufacturers and asking them directly, you need to make a product for us to keep us safe. It can't just be about keeping gay men safe. We need something too. Wow. Uh, But then research was conducted. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, are dental dams necessary? Like, what would uh, a doctor say if I said, like, I'd like to perform oral sex? You know, I- I'd like to perform cunnilingus. Mm-hmm. Do I need to use a dental dam? Well, so I think your doctor would probably feel a little cornered because <laughs> a lot of the doctors and health professionals I talked to said, well, I mean, I don't want to say no because you could potentially get herpes. And in in rare cases, you could get HPV. And doctors and and a lot of healthcare providers don't want to be in a position where they're saying, oh, you're fine, because there is still a risk. Um, But the risk is so low compared to pretty much every other type of sex. As somebody who knew nothing about Mm -hmm. this um, before I read your piece, um, I found the whole thing fascinating. And one thing I found particularly fascinating was uh, when you talk about the sort of symbolic importance of it, you know, how even though providers... Um, say like, uh, like I don't want to say no, but also some people are like, well, like this has meaning beyond sort of practical use, but sort of uh, signaling to people that, oh, like lesbian sex is real. Sex between queer women is real and it's not a sort of joke or something that you just see in um, on TV or something like that. Um, so could you tell me more about like, like, yeah, what were people saying about this? And I, I'm particularly interested if they... Does, what does that say about sort of our about queer sex education if you kind of need this product that feels like a relic from another time as like the sort of way to say like, hey, lesbians exist, lesbians have sex and it's real. Yeah. Could you just talk, yeah. talk a little bit more about no, that? No, I, I found that fascinating, too, um, because there's definitely a type of signaling that a lot of the sex educators I talked to, I was asking very specifically. So you're putting together a curricula. You have a short amount of time. You want to cover as much important information as you can. And many of them are still including dental dams. And I was basically like, what? Like, why mm-hmm. are you putting it in there? And some of them mentioned that it's an opportunity to signal or at least sort of call out a type of sex that is about female pleasure mm-hmm. um, and also generally about and associated with queer women. And it's sort of a type of like inclusivity and representation, um, which I thought was interesting because that's, I mean, it's kind of an odd method by which mm-hmm. to get that type of inclusion. Um, but because so much of sex ed is about preventing disease and like risk assessment in that context, the only way to sort of acknowledge queer sex or sex based on female pleasure is by acknowledging something that could maybe stop disease caused by that. I think the main way that I've come in contact with dental dams has definitely been, I mean, I've also never seen one in the wild, like much less during a sexual experience, but I have encountered them in queer porn and in general, like 
here's like queer fairs and stuff. Like we're at, at when we give out, um, you know, condoms meant for penises, we're also going to give out dental dams. Um, I, I wonder if those are like if you could speak to the reasons why they've been so persistent in those spaces. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, in those spaces, especially kind of that latter option of you're putting out a table with products, people are very aware of trying to be inclusive. And if there isn't a product for lesbian sex, that's a problem because the only way we're acknowledging it is through these products to make things safer. And so I think it's really about that signaling for inclusivity and the fact that there isn't some other way to acknowledge it, or at least that way hasn't been, hasn't become popular yet. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that they have really persisted in this way. Um, because I mean, with most pro- theoretically with most products in capitalist system, if no one is buying them, they disappear, but, um, they, they've stuck around at least for, I think that symbolic value and the sort of gesture. It's interesting how like they, like how many different ways you can kind of cut that symbolism. Cause on the one hand it's symbolism to show like sex between women who have sex with women like exists. Um, but also like a sort of awkwardness symbolism, sort of like how the sort of coyness that exists in American culture, especially with talking when it comes to talking about women and queer women. And so it's just like, okay, we're going to just have this kind of like clunky thing that nobody really knows how to talk about in like a sort of valuable way. And also this thing that like, we don't actually know if it's pleasurable, but, but like, it's still like, it's like a butt and butt and butt and butt. Um, And I'd be curious to know, and this is just more sort of just me talking out loud. If there's been a certain, like a sort of evolution or attempt to make a dental dam sort of more pleasurable or like whatever, because, you know, you hear about how like there are different types of condoms that, you know, to, you know, people want to be pleasure. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Or it's like, you want to make them pleasurable. You want to make them sort of like almost as thin as possible, but also still good for protection. Um, And like, it just, to me, I would think that like dental dams have not undergone that same sort of um, evolution where like you're actually centering the people who use it and like to what extent that affects their sort of um, their, their pleasure and their intimacy. Um, I would think that it doesn't exist, but Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, the fact that the condom industry is so large. I mean, the U.S. imports more than a billion condoms per year. So (laughs) a lot of condoms. Um, (laughs) So there's a lot of room for experimentation Mm -hmm. and different, I think, products to appeal to different things and appeal to more sort of inclusive and pleasure focused sex. But with dental dams, I think the market is so small that there hasn't been that opportunity, though I, I did come across some startups that are trying to do sort of different things with with creating like a, a pleasure center, oh. a sexy dental dam mm-hmm. in different hmm. ways. Um, none of them have, I think, gotten to the point where like they're getting like FDA approval mm-hmm. or being marketed in kind of a major way. But I did come across some of that. There are people trying to do it. But again, I mean, I think if there isn't that demand there, like with condoms, the and this is what some of the the healthcare providers I was talking to were saying with condoms. Yes, they're pre- potentially pre- preventing STDs, but they also can prevent pregnancy, which is like the holy grail of horrible potential sex outcomes. <laughs> and it's 
I mean, it's hard to persuade people to use condoms, but it's not that hard if pregnancy is involved. Mm-hmm. And especially because there are way more straight people having potentially procreative sex than exactly. queer people. Right. And I think on a separate note, the marketing of condoms to gay men has all of that context with the, the AIDS crisis. But there isn't really a context with which to market a barrier mm-hmm. method to lesbians because I don't think anyone has proven that there is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with the HPV vaccine. Um, One example that did come up that I thought was fascinating, I was talking to, and this didn't make it into the article, so here's some brand new stuff. (laughs) But um, Scoop. A a scoop. Um, I was talking to a sex educator who's also a sex therapist, and she works with couples on their sex lives, but also their, like, romantic relationships. And she had one couple where dental dams were incredibly helpful because – the this was a heterosexual couple and the woman in that relationship had herpes and she wanted to still receive oral sex while she was having herpes flare-ups and in that case dental dams are great Mm -hmm. because she didn't want to transmit the herpes but she still wanted to to have sex and so that's a great situation for dental dams is it a super universal or widespread situation probably not um, but in those situations where there are people in committed relationships who are where one person um, has an STD or an STI, they can be helpful. But again, I just don't think there's a market big enough for that type of experimentation. So your piece was reported, not really necessarily argument driven, but I'd be curious if you see the dental dams continued existence and uh, promotion among sex educators, promotion among sex educators doing um, – I guess, more harm than good in terms of encouraging people to forego pleasure or be scared of sex um, in a what's an extremely low-risk sexual activity? Yeah, I mean, I really don't know in terms of the harm versus good question because I certainly don't think it's doing very much good. Hmm. I also don't think it's doing very much harm. I think the biggest harm that – this is an argument that Jessica Halem made. Um, she does outreach at the Harvard Med School into queer communities, and she – was a super great resource for me in this in this story. She said that it just doesn't make sense if you have a zero-sum amount of time as a sex educator. Why are you talking about dental dams? There are so many very important things that people are missing in their sex education that to have dental dams take up some of that space is just bizarre. There are, should certainly be better ways to signal queer inclusivity. Well, thank you so much, Anna. I loved your piece. It's called Nobody Uses Dental Dams. You can find it on theatlantic.com. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That's just about it for this month's Outward. Um, But before we go, we would like to do our usual updates to the gay agenda. Christina, why don't we start with you? Um, Well, so our theme for the gay agenda this month was for us to pick good sex music for a playlist. So I've got a couple recommendations. One Uh, If you're feeling kind of cheesy and over the top, Crazy Sexy Cool is a fantabulous album. Listen to it when you're having sex or when you're not having sex. That's uh, TLC's seminal work. Oh, classic. <laughs> um, 
Khaki King, who is a queer and a virtuosic guitarist. Um, I love her stuff. It's moody, also slightly weird and unexpected, but not in a way that's going to ruin your sex <laughs> vibes. Um, and Licky Lee, especially mm. her older stuff. Highly recommend uh, all of them. Yeah, good, good tips, Brandon. Uh, so I did more of a song um, that I think you can just think of other examples to go. Is along it Carly Rae Jepsen? It is not. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is not. Um, maybe, maybe one day, like I can have sex and think of Carly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's a tough big ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so I was mulling over this a little bit, and um, the song that I landed on as just like a, I think for me a solid example is Janet Jackson's 1993 song "If." Don't know if anyone's familiar with it. Oh, yes. You know, it's always been known as sort of marking um, a sort of pivot in her career where she she went from more of the sort of like mid-80s sort of like when I think of you song to sort of like the embodying more of a sort of sexual persona. But with this song in particular, like it's good with good reason that people think this. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it has these R&B and New Jack Swing and hip hop elements that are just sort of they coalesce to create this sort of um, visceral body pumping sort of beat. Um, and then you add in the lyrics and the song itself, the lyrics, she speaks very, very quickly and often in a, in a huskier sort of voice. Um, and so like the lyrics from start to finish are very... Um, very sexual, we'll say, but the chorus in particular, I, I just love um, because she's essentially, the song is about her fantasizing about um, just th- singing about fantasizing somebody in a club. Um, and I think um, she's just sort of like dreaming up like mm. what she would do to this person. So in the chorus, she says, if I was your girl, oh, the things I'd do to you, I'd make you call out my name. I'd ask who it belongs to. If I was your woman, the things I'd do to you, but I'm not, so I can't, then I won't. But if I was your girl. <laughs> um, and so I think in a way, she's sort of leaving you with these sort of like lyrical blue balls. Um, <laughs> in a way that I think, <laughs> um, at the same time that she's sort of inviting you to imagine your own uh, sexual fantasy like it, to me it feels like a flex right um, mm-hmm. and I love it like it's very empowering where I think she's sort of just like owning her own power specifically in the bedroom um, and so I find the whole thing just ferociously sort of like it's just a huge turn on and so like if you want something to have you know low in the back where you sort of like you know have those Janet Jackson vibes mm-hmm. I recommend listening to If Ooh, I love that <laughs> I love that um, so I hate music during sex um, I like it. I find I find it hardly distracting for the most part, and, huh. or like weirdly T-I-L. like or like weirdly cinematic. It's like it feels like you're like trying to create mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. scene in a yeah. You uh, are art of, <laughs> but see, like me being there is this the scene. You know, <laughs> like we're we're here. We don't need it. Doesn't need to be like cinematic. It has like foreplay. Like um, into it. I mean, it's not that like. Sure, some like soft music is, but I just like like. Would sex you get music. up and turn off music? I have. That was already randomly. Playing. I have. I definitely have. Yeah, yeah. Respect. Um. Yeah, I just find it like, it, it, especially if it's like somebody's putting on like a sex playlist, like that just feels <laughs> like a little bit cheesy to me. Um. But so so to answer the question, uh, what I will say is the song by which I was seduced for the very first time. Oh. So clearly that one worked. <laughs> 
uh, which was um, Imogen Heap's Let Go. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can tell we went to college at the same time uh, because my freshman year in college, that was also that, the sex song of choice. <laughs> Um, yeah, so let let go was on definitely on the uh, the boombox or whatever the hell uh, <laughs> at school um, during that scene, and I remember feeling like it was describing what was happening to me so perfectly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, maybe try that one. I don't know. I don't know if it holds up, but uh, it, it worked on me at one point. <laughs> So that's it for Outward this month. Please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. And also, don't forget to get your tickets to our live shows in June at slate.com slash live. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the bird to our bee. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds next month. Bye, Brian. See ya. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brandon. 